Hi there, everybody. This is Bruce Kelly, senior columnist with Investment News, and you are listening to another episode of the Investment News podcast brought to you this week by Charles Schwab Asset Management. My co-host and colleague, Jeff Benjamin, couldn't make it today, so you have me solo. And our guest for today is none other than Peter Nesvold, uh, who is who has an extensive resume, uh, but is uh, best described right now as partner at Republic Capital Group, and a guy I speak to about the investment banking process um, in the wealth management and RIA market uh, right now. So uh, he's a great he's been a great source for investment news. So I just wanted to make sure uh, more people got to hear him. So Peter, thank you for taking a little time this afternoon and chatting with us. You bet, Bruce. Thanks for having me. What uh, could you just give us a little bit of background, Peter? Again, I was just looking at your LinkedIn page as we were discussing. You have a lot going on, including you know all kinds of industry stuff, but you also teach a little bit at Fordham, which is very interesting. And uh, of course, your people might know your better half, Liz Nesvold, who's mm-hmm. also a banker in this business. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, I consider myself a perpetual student, and whether that's a student of the wealth management industry or a student of investment banking generally, and I do like to pay it forward, as they say. Um, I love my teaching role at, uh, at Fordham. It's been a great opportunity to uh, really have a direct impact on a lot of education uh, of, of, of my students. Uh, I've written a few books as well, and, and I can I sort of count that the same as, as sort of the uh, the teaching work. It's uh, it's it's very intellectually challenging. What do you what do you actually teach at Fordham? I teach mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I teach both the undergrads and the grad students. And you know, funny coincidence, it's actually the same class that I took thirty odd years ago, maybe twenty five <laughs> to thirty years ago. And it's the class where actually I met Liz. <laughs> so it's uh, it's gone it's gone full full circle now. That that is the definition of serendipity or something. <laughs> That's exactly right. You never know where life's going to take you. Just again, I'm a former school teacher, uh, a former high school, middle school, and high school teacher. So I'm always fascinated by people who teach and and at any level. Just one more question about teaching. What what are the kids, uh, your students, like? You know, these twenty year olds or twenty two year olds or twenty four year olds. You know, when they're taking a class and and mergers and acquisitions, what it what are their expectations or what are the what are they thinking or just what is their their sense you know we're i'm um, i just turned 58 you always hear about young kids and oh they're you know that's going to be the doom of the doom of us all when these kids come and take over and i i never i never uh uh subscribe to that that way of thinking myself i think <laughs> people always bring something new and different to the table what are your students like the students are great. I mean, there really isn't one specific type of student. Um, one thing I do pride myself on is trying to teach the class in a way that you don't have to necessarily be a finance major, whether that's undergrad or grad school, uh, to to really understand the class and to get a lot out of the class. So there are some that sort of come into it because they're curious about investment banking. There are others that really want to make that a, a career um, choice. And I, I admit that you will see the difference between the two. Um, you know, the students that are really there to climb the ladder and want to get into investment banking upon graduation, you do see them sort of kicking it into another gear. Um, but uh, but the, honestly, the, the students are fantastic. I've been really impressed with the quality at, at Fordham. Well, Fordham's a great school here here in uh, New York City, of course. 
Um, and it's interesting you're talking about, you know, people kicking it up a notch when they're thinking about investment banking. That's what we typically think of when we think of investment bankers, right? Aggressive kind of kind of people, aggressive, smart, uh, extremely sharp and competitive. Um, that brings us to you guys and uh, Republic Capital Group. You all have been involved in some recent deals recently, haven't you? Uh, that's right. We just advised a, a company called Brainerd Capital Management in its sale to Pathstone. Um, we also worked on uh, the, the recapitalization of Pathstone, where they brought Kelso in as a co-majority owner alongside Level Minix. So it's uh, it's been a very busy first half of the year. And you know, based on our pipeline, you know, we we expect to announce some very interesting transactions in the next three four weeks. A uh, couple that are sort of new to the space. Uh, I can't really tease it much more than that right now, right. but um, you know, it's someone outside of wealth management um, that's combining with one of the top wealth management firms. Um, so it's gonna, it, it'll definitely generate some headlines when it, when it's announced in a few weeks. Yeah, that's fascinating. When you have, you know, uh, when I have at least private conversations with people in the wealth management, the financing of wealth management, right? Mm-hmm. You know, from where I sit, we keep seeing valuations climb and go ever higher right it seems yep i mean you have some very healthy valuations like uh you know rockefeller was just rockefeller capital greg fleming's group was just involved in a transaction um they had i think a 200 million dollar investment or 400 million dollar investment or something like that that valued them on a 100 billion in assets uh a one percent value you know a one percent valuation would be a billion mm-hmm. right but they, they're, they're valued at $3 billion. So, three, you know, according to this new uh, investment. And in my conversations with people, some of them have said, yeah, that's pricey. And other people have said, well, it's just really, you couldn't go and do what Greg Fleming has done again, you right. know, over the past, in the next five or 10 years. You couldn't have built this thing, right, the way he did starting right now. So there's a premium on getting into the wealth management business. And it seems like big investors want to get into the wealth management business. What is your sense of of the marketplace right now? Are people willing to pay this premium for these private companies or or what? What do you think? Yeah, you know, and maybe if I rephrase the question a little bit, because I get asked frequently about, you know, is there a slowdown happening? And Boy, you know, I'm starting to wonder, are we taking market share or is the slowdown not materializing? I think it's maybe it's hopefully it's both, but um, we are not seeing a slowdown, um, you know, and I, and I think some of the evidence are, 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 are examples. Some of the examples are firms like Rockefeller. Um, we just saw the CI deal, which also uh, was at a very high valuation, uh, roughly 25 times EBITDA. Right. And and these are new players that are coming in to finance these 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 organizations. So. Um, there's no shortage of capital on the sidelines looking to get in. And so, you know, it's, it's still, I, I, I hate to seem Pollyannish, uh, if that's the right word, um, but there's still a bull market in wealth management. Um, there's probably three dozen private equity-backed platforms that are looking to consolidate the, uh, the market. Um, private equity is not in the business of trying to time the market. They're in the business of deploying capital. So, so long as they can continue to raise money uh, at 20 times EBITDA and buy businesses at 12 times EBITDA, that math still makes a lot of sense. 
uh, it's not to say that there are a couple of buyers that are on the sidelines uh, because they've been very aggressive in recent years and they, they frankly need to digest what they've acquired. Some are getting squeezed out a little bit around the edges just on uh, debt capacity and interest rates. Um, however, the, the broader theme is we're seeing new players still coming into the market and stepping in where some of those larger buyers have taken a little bit of a pause. So I look at that holistically and I say that's not really a slowdown. That's just sort of an evolution or a changing of the guard. Yeah, it's interesting to me, again, as being this kind of middleman of the industry, right? As a journalist, you're sitting in between all these different sides who have competing um, markets for their information. <laughs> yeah. And platforms like Investment News newspapers, right, have to decide what we publish and what we don't publish and, and all. And it's just so different from, say, 10 years ago. I remember sitting at my desk at Investment News and I would get literally i get called by hedge funds asking me uh, not about you know wealth management firms or anything mm -hmm. but whether or not they should buy shares of lpl financial right uh ticker symbol lpla literally i got d not dozens but tens of calls <laughs> mm -hmm. and maybe a two when lpl was kind of struggling after its ipo in 2010 and 2012 to 2015 um, and you had all these outs these outside investors, um, uh, uh, activist investors, right, taking positions in LPL. I got all these calls about uh, uh, this wealth management firm that was in the public market, right? Yep. Saying, "Hey, you seem to be an LPL expert. You've been covering the company for a really long time. What can you tell us what we don't know?" And I'd always say, "Look at my articles. That's all I know." <laughs> you know. But it was interesting to get the calls from those guys. They were looking to put money in the public market. And now it just seems to have shifted where it's not the hedge fund money in the public market, but it is the private equity money uh, and to a lesser degree VC money in into the private market. I think that's exactly right. And, and a little bit of inside baseball. I mean, we um, we get contacted all the time by private equity, which is not a surprise. I mean, they're looking for deal flow, totally understandable, and we're more than happy to accommodate those calls. And we continue to come across new private equity firms that we're not familiar with, uh, some of which are very substantial that have not invested in the space in the past. So you're right, there is this sort of steady train of interest in the space. You know, I even remember when focus was down to sub $30, um, right. I, was, I was getting calls from hedge funds also you know, people trying to pick apart the business model, trying to decide if they should get involved or not. So, you know, the uh, the space has certainly attracted the interest of outside capital. Um, you know, some may debate, you know, is that good or bad for the industry long term? Um, but I think the reality is that it's here. Um, it is institutionalizing this this industry. And it's going to take quite some time before we're truly consolidated. It could be another 10 years. But I think this industry is going to look like uh, so-called big law. Uh, when you look out a decade or so, um, where you have some really mega um, law firms that dominate the market, and then you have a bunch of you know smaller boutiques and local markets that are that are focused on the economics or the the economic landscape of their of their local region. But I think you're going to have the equivalent of a Cravath and a Scadden and a Wachtel. Uh, I think these are going to be names like Serity and Creative Planning, and um, there there are many others that are out there. Right. Uh, the, I think these are the companies that are going to be the survivors, and I think they're going to be $200 billion companies at some point uh, in terms of assets under management. You know, right. Some are halfway there already. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I have a my per, you, you give it a ten year window. I give it more like a five to ten year window. I, I'm a little on the shorter end. I'm probably wrong, but if I were to make a wager, I'd bet on the shorter side too because you never know what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what happens if uh, you know <laughs> the U.S. goes into default on its debt? You know, right, right. Or if we have a God forbid another COVID or something like that. There just seems to be these types of, or, you know, we have another banking crisis of some kind, right? Uh, which we had a mini banking crisis this past, uh, this past March. So it just seems there, there, there's so many of these um, uh, uh, unforeseen events out there. Uh, it could happen a little quicker, but I'm definitely with you on that 10-year time frame, you know? I just think it might occur a little, a little shorter. We're going to see that kind of consolidation. That's that's completely fair. And, and it, what's also really fascinating about just what's going on, because consolidation, M&A, I mean, these are the things that capture a lot of headlines. But as we often point out, the number of RAAs is still actually increasing. Um, yes. The industry is actually becoming more fragmented now. I think technology has made it a lot easier to get into business um, than it ever has been before. But what's also interesting is that the point at which a firm is at critical mass that number seems to also keep going up. I mean, there was a time in the mid-2000s where 250, 350 million of assets was considered sort of um, an institutionalized wealth management firm. Then it became 750. Now it's probably one to two billion um, before firms really hit that inflection point. So, so it is interesting that, you know, despite all the talk about consolidation, that the industry is actually becoming more fragmented. That's the counter trend, right? Yep. Um, and if we do have smooth waters financially over the next 10 years, it's only going to get more. It's just going to get, you know, it could, it could be increasingly fragmented. Um, we're really looking into a future that has a, a, a numerous amount of possibilities to shake out as it consolidates at the same time. Right. Which is undoubtedly going to happen. Schwab Asset Management is proud to support the Investment News Podcast. As one of the nation's largest ETF providers, Schwab Asset Management offers educational resources that can help advisors build on their ETF expertise. Did you know that ETF investors consider cost a top factor in choosing an ETF? Or that there is a growing interest in personalization among ETF investors? For more ETF insights, tools, and analysis, visit schwabassetmanagement.com forward slash ETF know-how. That's schwabassetmanagement.com forward slash ETF know-how. Interesting what you said about deal flow. I kind of liken it to this recession we're supposed to have or supposed to be having. Mm -hmm. I've done a little travel recently, uh, both for investment news and just for for my, my family. And, you know, wherever you go, it's always crowded, you know. Absolutely. The airport's packed. The plane is packed. The hotel is packed. <laughs> I don't, you know, usually when there's a recession, there's, there's, you know, people are out of work and not spending money. And I just don't see it. And, you know, there's supposed to be this slowdown in deal flow with RIAs. And, you know, my email box is littered every week with, you know, deal after deal that we have, we have, we have too many deals to write about, essentially. <laughs> we would just become a press release. Right. Service, right. News service you know, which is what we don't want to be. Yeah, it's, um, again, the pace of acquisitions has been remarkable. And, and, and again, 
we don't take it for granted, but um, but we do think that it is atypical of what we're seeing in investment banking generally. Um, you know, when we read sort of the uh, the the in- investment banking trade journals and trade press, certainly there's been a slowdown in other parts of the market, but but we just really haven't seen it in wealth management. I think this is one of the biggest trends, frankly, in um, in in uh, anything that that sort of impacts us right now. Um, you know, we look for these so-called mega trends. I think the, the gradual consolidation of the wealth management industry, professionalization of it, institutionalization of it. I think we are in sort of the golden years, frankly, of wealth management. Uh, it's a, it's a really exciting time. And I guess the, the the you know thinking about it just from a financial advisor's point of view, CI Financial made a big splash, right? They sold a big chunk of the company mm-hmm. to Bain Capital and another outside investor. Uh, recently, I think it was twenty percent, right? That sounds right. Yeah, but the stock hasn't budged, and then there's been some critics of the deal because the the uh, there's this issue, and I ha- I have to explore this more fully in the coming weeks and do a story about it. But it, I think some people are being wary or critical of CI Financial shares right now because of this payment in kind structure. Yes, that was uh, that was part of the deal. And so the, the two new investors get paid, re, I think, regardless, right? Going down the road in a one or two or five year uh, 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 period, dep- regardless of what happens to the rest of, of the company. It, could you just speak about that a, a little bit? Uh, and then, you know, how does that impact a financial advisor's thinking about, you know, selling potentially to one of these big uh, platforms like a CI Financial. Yeah, we were not personally involved in the CI deal, but but certainly I did take a look at it. And so you're right that the payment in kind or the so-called pick element of it is probably captured the most attention. And and for listeners that aren't familiar with uh, with payment in kind, it's sort of like a zero coupon bond. Um, you know, you might buy it at forty cents on the dollar, and instead of paying interest, the government doesn't pay interest on it uh, in the current year. You just get another um, piece of, of, of debt. Um, so it compounds. There's no current cash flow requirements, but it compounds. Um, and that could add up pretty quickly. Um, so, so anytime you see pick in the capital structure, that's over time, if you don't address it within a reasonable period of time, they can get to be very, very expensive. The other thing that sort of stood out on that deal was that um, the pick was at 14.5%. Now, it's common that private equity has some kind of preferred return. Um, historically, that's been about 8%. Just to put that 14.5% into context, that did get compressed down to maybe 6% at certain points during the last business cycle, just given where interest rates were. So, you know, the combination of it being pick and at 14.5% tells you that, all right, this was, this was pretty expensive financing. Um, they are also first money out. So uh, in many ways, if I were investing in the, in the deal, it's actually quite an attractive um, uh, asymmetrical type return because if things go well, I participate on the upside. If things don't go well, I'm still clipping 14.5% and, and I'm going to get my money out first in the event that something bad happens. Right, you mean attractive for Bain and the, and the other Exactly, group. exactly. Yeah. So I think that's, that's one reason that uh, that the the shareholder base didn't react. Um, not so attractive for the common shareholders, though, right? Well, you know, it's not so attractive for the common shareholders, and it does continue to put more pressure on CI to eventually get that public listing. 
you know, one could argue that it was self-imposed, um, but but you know, for better or for worse, they went out with a year-end 2022 target and they weren't able to hit it. And markets certainly weren't weren't very helpful. Um, but but this financing, given given how expensive it is, does continue that pressure on CI to uh, to make it to the public markets in the U.S. at some point. If I'm a financial advisor and I've been working, you know, my tail off for 10, 15, 20 years to build one of these, you know, super regional firms that does have a billion to two billion. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm being, you know, badgered constantly with calls from your 36, 32 investors. Right. That that are out there that you that you identified what, what the fine this financing of the CI deal. What does that mean to me if I'm if I'm an if I'm an advisor and I'm looking to sell? What do I have to be wary of of who I partner with if if that's the way to look at this or reshape the question in whatever way you think is appropriate? You know, again, and, and I'm sort of hitting on some common themes here, but the fact that Bain came into this deal, um, the fact that um, that Clayton Dublier and Rice came in on on the Focus deal. It tells you that there are still very sophisticated, large private equity firms that want to continue to deploy capital in the space. Right. So, you know, you can't really draw a comparison of the valuation that CI got because, you know, you know, well over 100 billion in assets. Clearly, that's a very different kind of business. It's going to trade at a much higher multiple than, than a firm with one to two billion. But what it does reinforce is the fact that outside investors still want to continue to own uh, a piece of these types of businesses. So I think it bodes well um, for continued consolidation in the market. So do you hang on to your firm today or do you or do you sell it? Yeah, it's a very, very personal. <laughs> it's a very yes. personal decision. My my business partner John Langston uh, likes to use the word situational. Uh, we've been we've been kind of joking with him uh, using that word back on him a couple of times recently. But but it really is situational to uh, to quote John, and you know. But I would say the best time to sell the business is when you don't feel an overwhelming pressure to do so. The best time to sell is when you still have growth ahead of you. Um, you've you've spread the equity around. These are all things that make the the business more sustainable long term and make it more attractive to buyers or investors. Um, when you get to a point and in uh, you know I, I'm in my early 50s, so you know these these ages are kind of kind of up kind of come up on me pretty quickly. But you know as you approach 70, um, it wouldn't be unusual that a lot of the clients of the firm. Uh, if, if a founder is approaching 70, that a lot of clients, you know, are 70 plus as well. Right. And and that's where you start to see a diminishing um, valuation to the business. Right. So, so, again, you know, I would say ideally late 50s, early 60s, it's an ideal time to uh, to start to explore, maybe even earlier. Um, and why not take off a couple of hats? I mean, nobody really starts one of these firms because they want to be a COO, for instance. CEOs are very valuable. I used to be one myself. Um, but, but typically, they're started by asset gatherers or, or salespeople. And, you know, running a business isn't always as much fun after 10 or 15 years. Um, and, and a lot of our clients really embrace the opportunity to return to, uh, to that sales role. To me, I mean, and, and we'll, we'll just start to wrap it up here in a minute or two to me the the way i look at this um marketplace is through the lens of brokerage because i was i do both now i write about broker dealers and rias but if you go back to 2005 and 60 you know lpl was acquired at that time 60 percent of it at a value by um 
Texas-specific group and Hellman and Friedman, I think. Um, and uh, they bought 60% of the firm. That was Todd Robinson's percentage of the firm, and the rest uh, belonged to the employees. And I think the valuation was at $2 billion, $2.5 billion for LPL back then. That could be right. I don't know offhand. Yeah, they bought 60%. So that was in 2005. The company lists uh, in 2010. And today, it listed at 30. Today, it's trading at $198 share. And the market cap is north of $15 billion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's remarkable. So to me, out of all, you know, again, because I've been covering the brokerage space for so long, that that is a remarkable return on investment, right? Absolutely. And and it, and, the, and the great thing is they're not alone in that story. I mean, there are, so, I mean, while they were public and so high profile, um, a lot of the firms that uh, that we're looking at today with 50 billion or so in assets weren't even around in, in 2005. Right. Um, you know, so it's 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 just such the, it's almost the epicenter of, uh, of entrepreneurialism. It's it's just such again, I, I love the space that I work in. Um, it's uh, it's just so remarkable how um, what the growth profile of these businesses looks like. Undoubtedly. And again, that deal is almost 18 years old. Right. Um, that that occurred 18 years ago, and look at look at what has happened to the to the value of the company right. over time. Right. Anything else for us today, Peter? Uh, I mean, uh, wish I could tease out a couple of our upcoming announcements, but uh, I don't want to jump the gun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a very full summer um, of uh, of transactions. I, I am very I'm hoping that we, the uh, the the government can find its way through the debt ceiling. Um, you know, we always have to be cognizant of what are the potential monkey wrenches that could be thrown into the system, and you know, default of U.S. debt um, could uh, could really throw things off. Um, that could set off another round of interest rate hikes, potentially, and put some brakes on on on, on things for a period. But uh, as we saw la- late last year, um, even when there was a bit of a pause after September 30th. Uh, after a quarter or so, things started to normalize pretty quickly. That's all great stuff. Peter Nesfold from Republic Capital Group, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. You bet. Thank you, Bruce. Launching every Monday, it's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. Uh, that was our special guest, Peter Nesvold. We also want to thank our sponsor this week, Charles Schwab Asset Management, and we want to give a shout-out to our producer, Angelica Hester. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com as well as uh, the popular platforms on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. If you got any questions for Jeff, you can reach him on Twitter. Jeff's Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine's at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week.